Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Thomas Chalmers was one of the greatest Scotsmen of the 1800s, and he wrote, among many other things, a little tract on human motivation. And in that tract, right toward the very end of it, he says this, Conceive or imagine a man to be standing on the margin of this green world, and that when he looked toward it, he saw abundance smiling upon every field, and all the blessings that earth can afford scattered in profusion throughout every family. It's a beautiful scene. And the light of the sun sweetly resting upon all the pleasant habitations and the joys of human companionship brightening many a happy circle of society. Imagine this to be the general character of the scene upon one side of his contemplation. And that on the other. Beyond the verge of the godly planet on which he was situated, he could see, descry, see, nothing but a dark and fathomless unknown. Do you think that he would bid voluntary adieu to all the brightness and all the beauty that were before him upon earth and commit himself to the frightful solitude away from it? It's wordy because he's a Scotsman, and he would have said it in his accent. It would have been really wonderful to hear. But you understand the scene that he's presenting there. You're standing here. There are two scenes before you on this side, bright, beautiful, sun, green grass, pastures, birds, beautiful. And over here, dark abyss, space stretching out forever, cold. And the question that he asks, speaking of human motivation, is which one would you choose? How could you choose that one, as miserable as it is? You can't. You will always choose this beauty. Let me ask you, which of these two scenes, which Thomas Chalmers presents to us, in your mind, in the way you really think, represents the Christian life? And which one represents the world? Satan is laboring very hard, every day, so hard, to present to you as a Christian a picture of the Christian life over here that is cold and it's miserable. Oh, it's terrible. It takes away all your fun. It takes away all your joy. Yes, you should do it, of course. Yeah, it's good. It's right. But it's no fun. And Satan is laboring with all his might to present to you through social media, through movies, through your neighbors, through your own inner musings, to present to you the world that you've renounced as if it were where the fun is at. That's where it's at. But you've had to settle for a lesser kind of life. At least you get heaven out of it. But while you're here, quite unpleasant, you watch movies and people sleep around and there's little consequence and they're so happy and they're the beautiful people. They're all attractive. They always know what to say. None of the social interactions that are awkward that you experience. And they're lying and cheating and making light of it all. That's the world. It looks nice. 
It's got ambiance. It's got lights. It's got makeup and it's got good vibes. It's got everything you want. And then Satan says, you can have all that, but what you've chosen is a cold, fathomless space. You're doing the right thing, but really you've aligned yourself with Puritans and Karens, oppressors. Let me tell you something that you already know. Satan's a liar. Oh, such a liar. Even the father of lies. And what he presents to you every week, it's not true. Listen, let me put it simply. The world is not having more fun than you. All taken together, in any given instance, sure. But all taken together, the world is not having more fun than you. The world is not happier than you, all taken together. The world does not have more joy. The world does not have more brightness, more radiance, more hope. No, no. The Christian life possesses all of these things. Satan is propping up a skeleton and saying, what a beautiful bride. But it's not true. The fathomless void is the world. And so many of us, all of us who know Christ, we've come out of that world. We can attest to that. It's not a fun place to live your life. The beautiful green scenery, that is Christian living. Yes, it involves the pain of fighting our sin. Like we've seen in this passage, the spirit and the flesh are fighting. That's difficult. But there's so much more beauty. There's so much more joy. There's so much more light and life. You know the things that you find over here in the Christian life? You tell me if this is beautiful or ugly. Love. Joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the good life. Don't believe what Satan's been telling you. That's the good life. The virtues that only the Holy Spirit can work in us. And our entire goal as we look at this passage this morning is not just to analyze what the fruit of the Spirit are, but for you to shift your thinking, cleanse away what the devil's been doing all week in all of us, and to see the fruit of the Spirit, the virtues that the Spirit wants to work in His people, Christian living, as not this ugly, dour thing, but as beautiful, light, bright greenery. So let's look at the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, and we're starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Starting back in verse 16, Paul has been writing to the Galatian Christians about the greatest conflict that all of us Christians experience, that within ourselves, between our flesh, that is what's sinful in us, and the Holy Spirit who now indwells us. Those are fighting, and we saw just last week, if the flesh is winning out in your life, 
what will that look like? And we saw the list, the vice list that Paul presented to the Galatians last week. It's an ugly list. It's a bad list. Sins of pleasure, sins of pride, sins of power. But today we take a more positive turn. That's why it begins with, but the fruit of the Spirit. Today we're moving away from the ugliness of sin that affects all of our lives to green pastures, to the very best way for you to live your life, for something more pleasant, more beautiful than anything on TikTok, than anything you can find on a television show, than any dream you've ever had. This is the ideal life because this is the life that Jesus Christ lived. And that the Holy Spirit, who is making us, his people, look more and more like Jesus, is working in us. These are the fruit of the Spirit. So let's look at these. Let's try our best to forget culture for a moment and look at the reality that God sets before us. First, kind of like last week in parallel, focusing on the virtues, which are the fruit of the Spirit, what they are. And then at the end, briefly, the encouragement that's attached to them for us. So let's look at these virtues first. We talked about sins last week quite openly. Let us begin to talk about virtues this week. Look one more time at this list. But the fruit of the Spirit is, number one, love. Number two, joy. Three, peace. Four, patience. Five, kindness. Six, goodness. Seven, faithfulness, eight, gentleness, and nine, self-control. Now, we don't have time, although I was talking to Darren earlier. I wish we could do a sermon on every one of these. I truly do. But we're going to have to categorize these somehow to discuss them. And this list does not categorize that easily. There is an incredible amount of overlap between all of these virtues. In a real sense, they all relate to the other ones so when you look at the first of them, for example, love, you could say that all of these are an outflow of love, and there is some truth to that. We'll see that in a second. So take it with a grain of salt, but just for the sake of us understanding these virtues, I'm going to break it into three parts like we did with the vices, and we are going to consider first the virtues of love, secondly the virtues of joy. And third, the virtues of self-control. So let's begin with the virtues of love. And this is fitting and makes sense because if you remember our vice list, it began when it got to the sins of pride with enmity, which is a feeling of hatred that you have for someone else. And then you saw that all the other sins of pride flowed out of that feeling of hatred. If you hate other people, you fight them. If you hate other people, you're jealous toward them. So there is really an inner feeling that flows out into all of these sins. There's a similar dynamic happening here on the other side of things. The first fruit listed is love. There's a real sense in which love is the chief virtue. It's the one that flows out into all the other ones. First, this is clear because love is the first on the list. And on a list like this, whatever's fronted is going to have some emphasis. But secondly, you remember that the New Testament very often summarizes your entire responsibility before God by that one word, love. 
We saw it in this chapter. If you remember up in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there's a sense in which every virtue is a virtue of love. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull two of the virtues from the list out, namely joy and self-control. Because those relate to love, but less directly. All of the other virtues, all of the other fruits of the Spirit directly relate to how you relate to other people. We'll push joy and self-control off to the side. And just for now, consider the other seven fruits, which I'm going to call virtues of love. So they would be this, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. The greatest of these, as I've said, is love. Now what is love? It's a tall order to describe to you what love is. But let me begin by saying, if we don't get this right, we've got nothing. We are nothing. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If you don't get this right, you're nothing. If you don't have love, you don't have to perfectly define it, but if you don't have love, what are we doing here? This is a waste of everybody's time. Jesus taught that the defining characteristic of Christians is not that they get up early and get in the Word. But please do that. Don't hear me say don't do that. But the defining characteristic of Christians is the love that we have for each other. By this all people will know that you're my disciples, Jesus said, if you have love for one another. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, his famous love chapter says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these, more than faith, more than hope, the greatest of these is love. Love is, here's an attempt at a definition, most simply, a feeling of affection that you have for someone else that leads you to sacrifice for their good. Now, I'm going to put aside love for God. It's related. It's a feeling of affection. It leads you to sacrifice, but you can't benefit God. God doesn't need anything from you, thankfully. He's doing great. You know, he's got it all handled, handled well. So you can't sacrifice for God in the same way you can for others who are in need. But there's still a similar dynamic there. The way you express your love for God is not by meeting his needs, but by obeying him. But this passage here is clearly focusing on our love for each other, which is, as I've said, a feeling of affection that we have for each other that leads us to sacrifice for each other's good. Like I said, the vice list started with enmity, led into all the other kinds of vices from that feeling of hatred. If you have a feeling of affection for someone else, You'll, insofar as it depends on you, have peace with them. You won't be in conflict, insofar as it depends on you. If you have a feeling of affection for someone, you'll be patient with them. You'll put up with their failures. You'll be kind toward them. You'll be gentle with them. You'll keep your commitments. You'll be faithful. So all of this springs out of love. Now, me saying this, you might yourself feel a bit of a hesitance 
to call love a feeling. Let me talk about that for a second. I understand why we are hesitant to call love a feeling. I mean, after all, those of us who grew up in the 90s, DC Talk had love is a verb, something you do. It's not just something you feel. I think there are two reasons that we're hesitant to call love a feeling. The first one is you and I as Christians know that we have to love others, especially when we don't feel like loving them. That's when the rubber meets the road. And so we often counsel each other when someone just doesn't feel love for someone, says, how can I treat them nicely? I feel angry. I don't feel love. And our counsel often is, well, love is what you do. So just do the right thing here, whether you feel it or not. I think the second reason that we're hesitant to call love a feeling is because you and I, we all know that it's possible to say you love someone and not do anything to back it up. Just a fake kind of light love. Little children, the Apostle John wrote, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We don't want to pretend love. We want to really love other people. So we're hesitant to say it's a feeling because someone can say, well, I've got a feeling of love. I'm just not going to do anything about it. That's not real love. But even with those dangers... It's difficult to deny that at the end of the day, our love for each other involves a feeling of affection that we have for each other. And like I said in the definition, it leads to sacrifice for each other's good. Yes, leads to it, but it's not the same as the sacrifice. It's not the same as the good things we do for each other. You could just imagine a mother who says, oh yes, I love my children. Now, I don't particularly like them. I don't want to be around them. I wish I didn't have them. I wish they were somebody else's problem. But I feed them, and I clothe them, and I take care of them. I do all the loving things a mother should do. So yes, I love my children. She doesn't love her children. So love is not feeding. Love leads to her feeding the children. Love is not the same as her taking care of the child. Love leads her to take care of the child. But we all recognize love is something else. Love is whatever's behind the feeding and the taking care of and the sacrificing. It leads to the sacrificing, but it's something else. And what is it? For lack of a better word, it's a kind of feeling. A feeling of affection. This is love. Think even in Jesus' life. Jesus always did the right thing. But it's more than that. He always felt the right thing. That's the harder part. Remember when Lazarus, his friend, had died? And Jesus wept. And the Jews looked at Jesus weeping and said, See how much he loved him. Jesus, if he was just interested in formally doing the right thing, with no affection, no heart involved would not be weeping. The weeping comes from, he's hurting, probably for Mary and Martha, maybe for Lazarus, who had to suffer and die. And so he's weeping. His heart's involved. What is that? It's a feeling of affection that he has for this little family of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. That is love. Now, we have to say as well that that feeling, however you define that, of affection for others, 
results in sacrifice. It results in us doing things for each other. We know this because the single greatest act of love of all time ever that can never be matched is the death of Jesus Christ for us. In this is love, says Scripture. Not that we've loved God. <laughs> that's not the best love. We love God, but we know that's not the best love. This is love, that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved? What was that? Something like a feeling of affection for us. And so what did He do? He sent. He gave. John 3.16 that we know puts it, For God so loved the world, there's the love, that he, here's the result, gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's the benefit. There's the good. Love is that affection that leads to sacrifice for the good of someone else, which is exactly what God did for us in Christ. Jesus himself also has this love for us and spoke of it in this way. Greater love has no one than this. That someone would lay down his life for his friends. Love, there it is. What does it result in? Laying down one's life. That's a sacrifice for the benefit, for the salvation, and for the good of others. Scripture looks at Christ's death on the cross and says, Beloved, if God so loved us, if he had a feeling of affection for us that led him to sacrifice deeply and greatly for our good. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Or even more specifically and shockingly, the Apostle John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You can't die like Jesus died. You can't lay down your life for someone else's sins. But you can lay down your life for the brothers and sisters. In other words, you can sacrifice for their good. That's love. That's what love leads to. We can't atone for someone else's sin, but you can sacrifice your money for someone else. You can sacrifice your time. You sacrifice your energy. You sacrifice your mental space. You lay it down for the brothers. Love is that affection that leads to sacrifice for the good of others. Now briefly, the good of others requires some understanding. By the good of others, we mean temporary relief. If you see someone, they don't have clothes, they don't have food, then you don't just say, well, go be warmed and be filled. You meet those needs. Temporary relief, even if they'll be hungry again tomorrow. You meet those, you don't say, well, it's not important, they'll be hungry again tomorrow. You meet those needs because you love them. It's for their good. So that includes immediate needs that people have. But for us as Christians, of course, the highest good is what we seek for everyone we love. And that is salvation and eternal life. Because there's a highest good we're seeking for others, this is why as Christians, when we talk about love, we also exercise a kind of tough love. Things like church discipline. Things like rebukes. This is why when you look at Jesus' own life, when he strongly rebukes the religious leaders, it doesn't look like love. 
But it only doesn't look like love if you think that the best good you can do for someone else is make them feel warm and fuzzy. And that's not true. Even the world understands this when someone has a deep addiction, say to a substance, let's say drug abuse. There are times where an intervention will take place and people will call out that substance abuse that the person has been denying and now they're embarrassed that it's being called out. Say, you don't love him. Why would you embarrass him? For his ultimate good, for a good later on. So as Christians, when we talk about love, it doesn't just mean always say nice, good things to everybody, never offend anybody, never ruffle any feathers. Otherwise, how do you square that with Jesus who ruffled many a feather? But when Jesus ruffled feathers, it was genuinely for the good of those bearing the feathers. It was for the good even of those he was offending. It was because he really cared about them and wanted their good. That's what love leads us to. I hope you can see now with this definition that if love is ultimately this feeling of affection, how shocking for Jesus to say, yes, love each other in this church. Love your enemies. So I can at best tolerate my enemies, maybe. I can get to the place where I can stand the sight of them. But this is what has always set Christianity apart. We won't settle for that. It might be a tough love. It's often a tough love. But it is love. It is a feeling of affection. We're not just here in this building holed up against the bad, bad, evil world out there hoping they all get destroyed so we can be safe and they can stop ruining our country and our lives. No, 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 no. You have to have a feeling of affection. For the people in this country and this world who are the biggest threat to you, your family, your safety, and your life. That's love. That's the call to Christian love. We follow a Savior who, while being murdered, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now that we understand something of love... We can talk about the many ways it plays out in our relationships. That's really what the rest of these virtues of love talk about. Like I said, peace. Peace is what your love for others, your feeling of affection for others aims for. You want to be in harmony with other people. You don't want to be fighting them. Sometimes conflict arises, don't ignore it. But insofar as it depends on you, you want to be at harmony with the people in this room. It's peace. Patience is the way that that feeling of affection handles being disappointed or hurt by others. If you have a real affection for someone else, they're not just the obstacle. You really care about them. They're going to let you down. They're going to fail you. They're going to offend you. Patience is you not bursting into anger right away. It's you putting up with the nonsense of the people around you, and they're putting up with yours too. You're patient. That's what love does. Kindness is the way that our love treats others day by day. If you really love others, then you're going to treat them in a kind way. You're not going to unnecessarily offend people. You're not going to be there with massive expectations and frowns to get them to do what you want. You're not going to be grumpy and cruel. You're going to be kind. You're glad to see these people. Goodness is really the sense of open generosity of life 
toward others. Goodness is when you walk in these doors and Bo Johnson comes and gives you a massive hug. That's goodness. You're not closed off from others who are threats. We are open. Faithfulness is love, that feeling of affection, desiring to keep its commitments to others. Because you know how inconvenient it is when people don't keep their commitments to you. And you love them and you don't want to put them through that. So if you tell them you're going to do something, you're going to strive to do it. You're going to be faithful and persevere. And gentleness is the way that this affection of love is delicate in handling others. If it's just about you getting your way, then you pull out the hammer and you hit the nail. But if it's about the other person's good, even if you have to move them in a particular biblical direction, you will do it with a gentleness because you don't want to cause unnecessary harm. Will it slow down the process? Yes. And will that be frustrating? Sure. But you have to do it because you love them. Now, we don't have time to discuss these more in depth, although I wish we did, but we don't. But here's the good thing. If you foster this affection of love toward others in yourself, love itself will teach you how to do all of these virtues, how to live them out. There are the bulk of the fruits of the Spirit, and they all come down to love. Let's move on now to the second category of virtues that I'm calling here virtues of joy. You might think, well, isn't that just a virtue of joy? Because that's just an item on the list, joy. And that is true. Although I do think that word peace on our list can fit into this category as well. There are different kinds of peace. There's the peace that we have with others when we're not in conflict with them. But there is also a kind of peace that you can experience within yourself. Where you're not worried, almost as if conflict within yourself all of the time. There is an inner peace that you can experience. That also is a work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers. So if you take these two virtues together, joy, peace, these do not relate directly to your relationship with others like the virtues of love do. They have some bearing there. But these have to do with just how you conduct yourself in your own thought life even day by day. You may not have been aware of this, but in the same way that as a Christian you are obligated to avoid sexual sin, in the same way, to the same degree, you are obligated to be happy. That is, to be joyful. To have inner peace. So you may be saying no to sexual sin and living a very disciplined, self-controlled life and you're utterly miserable. There's no joy. Nobody sees it. You don't see it. There's no peace going on in here. That's sin too. You've got to work on that. The Spirit produces in us joy. It's, it's a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And we can't say, well, we're keeping the other fruits. But I just can't have joy. Life's so hard. People let you down and you suffer and you get diagnoses. Rejoice in the Lord always. You have to have joy. You have to have joy. Now, if you're considering, well, what is joy? At its root, again, just right at its root, joy is very closely related to happiness. Now, you've probably heard joy is not the same thing as happiness. There's a truth to that. There's a truth to that. 
But when the Bible presents the idea of joy to us, it does begin by a picture of what we would call happiness. If you look through the scriptures, when they speak of joy, they're usually associated with things like laughing, like dancing, like harvests, lots of food, feasting. Actually, the one event presented in scripture as the summary of really joy itself is a wedding. Because at a wedding you have laughing, dancing, feasting, family, friends. The bride and the bridegroom have the excitement of coming together, being joined together. There is joy, so much so that Scripture has said, when you're with the bridegroom, you can't grieve at that point. Jesus said that. There's joy, and it's centered here. And as Christians, we know that no matter how hard life gets, there is a wedding coming. It is the ultimate wedding between the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and His bride. In Revelation, toward the end of that book, we read a voice crying out, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage. This is a wedding. And His bride, that's us, has made herself ready. Heaven is a world of joy, and the best way the Bible can present that to us is say, just imagine a wedding. That's heaven. That's Christ's return. You say, well, yes, yes, joy then, but see, right now is not then, and right now is just a lot of suffering. Right now is just a lot of pain. Yes, but as Christians, what happens is, it's like there's this flat plane here, and here's the immense joy of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we're looking forward to when everything's made right. And it is so heavy that when you put it here at the end, it weighs down the plane. And now there is a slant. There is a tilt. And gravity will now bring you down toward joy. We fight our best against joy. No, I will not be happy, but God is determined. No, I've got good things prepared for you. They're so good. I'm with you now to lead you there. And so as Christians, this is what our life ought to look like. Despite the suffering and the agony, because of the hope that we have, there is a slant, a leaning. You almost can't resist it. You move toward joy. It tinges everything. This is why the kind of Christianity that is just grumpy and miserable and hates the kind of music that was played and things like that. No, 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 no. Joy. That is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Peter said, though you don't even see Christ right now, you do believe in Him. And you rejoice, now listen, is your joy like this? With joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He's saying, that's something you do now. Now you do that. So we can say, yes, joy is not happiness. Yes, with Paul, we are as those sorrowful yet always rejoicing. But just be careful not to trick yourself into thinking, if you're just miserable all the time because you're just anxious all the time, you're not exercising the fruit of inner peace. That's a discipline as well. You're just letting your mind go everywhere. You're worried. You see the news. You see what's going on in people's lives. You become anxious and worried, and so you have no joy. You say, well, I'm just, I'm a martyr like Paul, you know. He just, he really struggled. He was sorrowful all the time. Yeah, rejoicing, and rejoicing some deep, profound thing that it's so deep, you can't even see it, you can't even feel it. It's almost nothing, but it's there somewhere. 
Yes, happiness is not the same as joy, but joy is something. Joy is you agonizing and suffering because there's real suffering and grief in this world. And yet you're on this slant where your heart is buoyed up. There's still a sense of joy that sustains you and an inner peace and rest. Final category of virtues. Virtues of love, virtues of joy, lastly, virtues of self-control. And again, it's really just virtue, self-control, but we could add that word patience in. Patience is a matter of self-control when you bear with other people. I have time only to say that, like I've said before, although self-control is usually where our minds go first, it's the last on the list. Because self-control is really just the way you can express, make sure you can express your love to others. If you feel an affection of love toward other people, but you are not self-controlled, you can't express it. It's very limiting. You can't give your money to someone in need if you're wasting all of your money. You can't love your wife and be faithful to her if you give in to adultery. Self-control is not an end in itself. That's important to say. Because there are some people whose religion consists mainly in self-control. There are some people who are so disciplined, they eat healthy and they exercise and they get in the Word, they do their daily quiet time and they pray, they say no to sexual sin, and they are committed and they're there on Sundays and they are faithful, yes. And that's it. That's all they are. They're also very miserable. They also don't love anybody. You see, there's a problem there. That's when we make self-control the ultimate good, the end in itself. And we often feel like, well, we're measuring up. I had a great day in the Word every day. And then you walk into church looking at these peons. You guys can't even get it together. You, you weren't in the Word all week. That's actually self-control operating to express your lack of love for other people. But the way that self-control works in Scripture is love comes first. And self-control makes sure that we can love God and love others well. It's just there as a butler. It's just there as a servant to help us to love. That's the purpose of it. That's important to keep in our mind. Why, why do I not commit adultery? Because I love God. I love my wife. I love you. That's why. It's not an end in itself. It flows out of love. Self-control flows out of love. If you want to grow in self-control, grow in love. And if you want to grow in expressing your love, grow in self-control. They work together. We need to move now to the end of this message. You've seen the fruits of the Spirit. And now we need to consider the encouragement that Paul attaches to them. Look at the end of verse 23. Against such things there is no law. Most basically, that means that list we just looked at, who's got a problem with it? The Mosaic Law does not have a problem with any of those things. The Judaizers can't complain about those things. Those are good things. Pagans can't complain. Do you know anybody who would look at this list and go, that's disgusting. Who would live their life that way? Even unbelievers recognize that's a good list. That's a good list. There's no law whether Mosaic Law in the Bible or outside the Bible, there's no law against these things. 
But in the context of Paul's letter to the Galatians, there's probably a little bit more at play here because the Judaizers are pushing law, saying dietary restrictions, keep these festivals of the Jewish calendar, be circumcised, do these variety of external things, put your focus there. And it seems that what Paul is saying is, listen, do you want to live your whole life obsessed with these physical, tangible, but rather questionable practices? Or would you like to build your life on nine virtues that no one in this world has a problem with? I mean, these are accepted everywhere. These are clearly right, clearly true. This is Jesus saying to the religious leaders, you strain out the gnat and swallow the camel. You tithe mint and dill and cumin. Your hearts are far from God. Don't build your life on externals. And this applies for us as well. You see these fruit of the Spirit. If your Christianity has become obsessed with externals, with the tempo of music, with the way people dress, these are important questions. But do you want to build your life on those things? No. You know what you want to build your life on? These virtues right here. There's no law against any of these virtues. It's interesting because in the Bible, speaking of law here, when we talk about sin, it's normal to hear lots of legal terms thrown out. So when the Bible talks about sin, it turns legal. Violation, trespass, penalty, punishment. But notice in our text that when the Bible here talks about virtue, it turns away from the courtroom, even the works in verse 19 there, works, turns away from the courtroom and it takes you outside to a field where crops are growing. And it says the Christian life is like this. It's not legal, mechanical, follow these rules strictly and you're good. No. Come out here and look at these crops that are growing. There are things that you have to do to foster these fruits in yourself, prepare the soil, get the pests out of there, water it. You need to get up and get in the Word. Don't say, well, he said that's not important. It's important. You need to do that. You need to prepare the soil. What I'm saying is, when you've done that, it's not like a machine where you do that and now you're holy. No, no, no. You prepare the soil. And then what are all of these called? Fruits of your self-discipline? Fruits of your gung-ho attitude? These are all fruits of the Holy Spirit. He works these in us. Don't think of your growth and holiness as a massive machine, as some machinery. And if you put the quarter in and the gumball comes out, you think of it like a plant. If you grow a plant, you do everything you can to make that plant grow. But the one thing you can't do is make that plant grow. You do everything you can to foster these fruits, these virtues in yourself. And then the most important thing of all is you turn to God and you pray that He, by His Holy Spirit, would work these in you. And if you see these virtues as beautiful, if you see them as the green grass and the blue sky, if you see them as the way of life most satisfying to you, to anyone, then that's exactly what you'll be praying. And then you will patiently wait, day after day, for your holiness to grow and grow and grow. It's not nine easy steps to holiness, but nine fruit as we depend upon the Holy Spirit that He will beautifully work in us.